This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Calvin Ng from Yale University. Transregional trade and traders situating Gujarat in the Indian Ocean from early times to 1900 published by Oxford University Press in 2019, is a volume co-edited by Professors Edward Alpes and Dr. Chaya Goswami, drawing on the important contributions of several scholars, historians, and specialists of the various corners of the Indian Ocean. It delves deep into the economic, social, and political history of Gujarat. Blessed with numerous safe harbors, accessible ports, and a rich hinterland, Gujarat has been central to the history of the Indian Ocean Maritime Exchange that involved not only goods, but also people and ideas. This volume maps the trajectory of the extracontinental interactions of Gujarat and how it shaped the history of the Indian Ocean. Chronologically, the volume spans two millennia, and geographically, it ranges from the Red Sea to Southeast Asia. The book focuses on specific groups of Gujarati traders, their accessibility and trading activities with maritime merchants from Africa, Arabia, Southeast Asia, China, and Europe. It not only analyzes the complex process of commodity circulation involving a host of players, huge investments, and numerous commercial operations, but also engages with questions of migration and diaspora. Paying close attention to current historiographical debates, the contributors make serious efforts to challenge the neat regional boundaries that are often drawn around the trading history of Gujarat. Over the course of our conversation, we will not only just talk about the historiographical impetus behind the volume, but also the methodological methodological contributions of this project. I will also ask what can South Asian history, economic history, and global history gain from Indian Ocean world studies to learn about those issues and more Join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Ned Alpes and Chaya Goswami, the editors of this wonderful volume, Transregional Trade and Traders. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the long durée of Gujarat, its history from the early modern period and back to the 21st century. Speaking from Bombay, hugging the coast of the Arabian Sea, is Chaya Goswami. Chaya Goswami is the head of the Department of History 
SK Sumayu College in Mumbai, India. She specializes in the maritime history of South Asia and the Western Indian Ocean. She has authored several award-winning books, including the, the Indian Ocean Congress, The Call of the Sea, Kachi Traders in Muscat and Zanzibar by Orion Black Swan, published in 2011. Her current research project focuses on maritime trade and piracy in the Gulfs of Kutch and Persia from 1650 to 1820. Speaking from California on the shores of the Pacific Ocean is Professor Ned Elpis, a research professor of history at UCLA. Professor Elpis' research and writing focus on the political economy of international trade in pre-colonial Eastern Africa, including the manifold cultural dimensions of this exchange system, with special attention to the wider world of the Indian Ocean. She is a prolific historian who has educated many generations of undergraduate and graduate students. I myself am speaking from New York, just inland of the Atlantic, so this is actually a really special occasion where we have the three of us speaking from three different time zones, hugging three different oceans. So welcome, Chaya and Ned, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your rich volume today. Just to start us off, can you perhaps say a few words about yourselves and how you became interested in this field of study and how this project or this volume came to be? I'll, I'll start and then uh, Chai can actually say more about uh, about how the volume came to be. But I, my interest, I'm not trained as a South Asianist, as you know, but my interest uh, in Gujarat uh, as opposed to the Western Indian Ocean more generally, comes from the fact that my early work on, uh, which part was partly on the ivory trade from uh, East Central Africa, Northern Mozambique, Southern Tanzania area, was was in the hands of uh, Gujarati traders uh, from a very uh, very early period, but during the period that I was studying. So I was I had to kind of educate myself. Uh, from the time I was a graduate student in the 1960s uh, about the uh, maritime aspects of South Asian history. And, uh, and then, uh, and I first visited, uh, actually first visited India uh, when I was teaching in Tanzania in, the, in 1966. Uh, I visited India uh, and to do work in the Goan archives, uh, the old Portuguese archives in Goa. Uh, and then in 1976, I wrote this piece on Gujarat in East Africa, which was really the only thing uh, I'd done in, typically about Gujarat until, until this volume. So my connection is a long one, but it was always as an, uh, on the Indian Ocean side of my interests uh, as an Africanist who studied international, uh, international trade. Thank you so much. Um, and what about you, Chaya? Can you tell us a bit more about how you became interested in the field of study of Indian Ocean history and how this project came to be as, a, as an edited volume? So when I uh, began doing um, uh, research on the triangular trading networks of Kutch, Muscat, and Zanzibar, I got closer to studies. Since I had uh, no former training with the, uh, in the area of studies and specialization, um, I gradually realized the importance of my work and then tried to situate it in a framework and identified it as a maritime history or business history and so on. Perfect. 
So now to, to talk a bit about the book, as historians of Africa and South Asia respectively, can you share with us what area studies can gain from Indian Ocean rural studies? Maybe I could do that since Chai, Chai has just indicated that she came come to the Indian Ocean not as an area studies person, but really as a business historian uh, initially. Uh, also, I think it's it, we might say something uh, about how this volume came about. Uh, this volume is the is was the third the result of the third of series of conferences. There's now been, there's been one more since us, right? I think uh, that has been, that have been organized by uh, the Darshak Itihas Nidhi, which is a foundation for studies and research in history on the history of Gujarat. It's an interesting organization, which is uh, locally organized and both by professional and non-professional historians. And they have, do publications in both English and in Gujarati, uh, and they've there. There were two previous uh, volumes, and then a third one. And uh, t- to be perfectly honest, uh, the way this the volume edit- editor group came together was I was contacted by Chaya, who and we'd never met before, but she contacted me uh, and invited me to give a keynote and. And to co-edit uh, the volume with her, and I think that, as, as we both agreed, and I subsequently found out, the previous co-editor, uh, Michael Pearson, was the one who suggested me. So Mike and I have a kind of a long history of working together on this. Anyway, the the conference itself was held in Surat, which was wonderful, uh, and there were a, a number of papers that were many papers that were given there, a number of, of uh, exhibitions. Uh, and then uh, it was up to Chaya and me to decide which ones were appropriate for publication and to work with the authors whom we identified to revise their papers and expand them where necessary and then to organize the volume. And so this volume uh, is really due to the initiative of the Darshak Itihas Nidhi for uh, supporting it and funding it and funding it and uh, and keeping the focus on Gujarati history. Yes, uh, yes. The you end- want to add anything to that? So the director of uh, Darshakitias Nidhi, Hashmuksha, who had organized two international uh, symposiums on the maritime history of Gujarat in Mandvi and Daman approached me to organize a third international conference and he realized that on trade and traders little has been written and I was anyways waiting for such opportunity because I had already researched on the Kachi traders. So the project idea was initiated in February 2015 through a meeting in a bar- in, in Baroda and by March I had uh, communicated to the prospective participants including the chair of the conference Professor Alpers why I thought of uh, Professor Alpers was because I had uh, read his seminal work on ivory and also a research paper on Gujarat and East Africa. So, in fact, I had uh, by then cited his uh, research paper uh, uh, in my work um, and as it gave leads on the trading activities of Gujaratis in East Africa during the early Portuguese period, 
i was uh, quite sure that uh, whom i uh, whom i was inviting and again attending uh, in 2012 an iowc conference on textile gave me the opportunity to see him in person but i did not interact much with him uh, but the fan following around him and his down to earth approach were enough to convince me that he is the right historian to chair the conference on transregional trade and traders and i was so delighted when he accepted the invitation i am thankful to him forever uh, because my journey right from the conference to editing the book with him was absolutely enriching his energy level enthusiasm and prompt replies clicked well so this is how we got uh, the book that's incredible that that is such a fortuitous story of how you know two brilliant scholars came to came to meet and came to um edit this incredible volume i so before we begin talking about the chapters um can we can you just give us a sense of the geography of gujarat a lot of these names surat diudaman baroda are really really evocative but perhaps for some of our listeners they might not be as familiar with the geography of gujarat so how could we perceive gujarat's geography in relation to the sea and considering that gujarat has been relatively marginalized in the historiography of south asia whose historiography has mostly focused on the bengal bombay punjab nexus how should we think about gujarat's role in terms of its um historical importance in south asia writ large so a long stretching coastline intersected with the two gulfs the gulf of kutch and gulf of cambay that is khambat dotted with a range of ports and skirted with the creeks and inlets the literal geography of uh, gujarat had much to offer to its seafaring populace uh, if explored accordingly and the populace did respond uh, to this geographic calling right from the uh, you know indus period when lothal uh, emerges as a uh, port um to the emergence of baruch and khambat before the portuguese entry to the maritime scene of gujarat vividly shapes up the commercial history of gujarat via sea specifically uh, during the period of guptas especially chandragupta the second the sea centric commerce flourished exponentially uh, by connecting the inland artisan center extending up till banaras in the north india so the earliest ideas of interactive oceanic circularities and formation of routes caravan trade commodity exchange have strong traces in this period the very legendary prosperity of the gupta period was largely derived from the trade of gujarat with the persian gulf and even uh, africa if sources to believe uh, the trading items exchanged were uh, ivory grain salt silk gems bullion so the temples uh, you know became the rep- uh, repository of the wealth and that is why after the arab invasion of sindh when the turks invaded uh, under mahmud ghazni from the central asia he had set an eye on the somnath temple on the gujarat shore uh, from there on it was the wealth of gujarat derived from the sea trade made it vulnerable to constant invasions of the sultans of delhi for instance alauddin khilji inv- invaded gujarat 
so bahadur shah of gujarat was partly responsible for uh, the mughals uh, air after babar uh, humayun's uh, political debacle in 1571 uh, when akbar captured gujarat uh, soon surat became the port of hindustan uh, and filled the coffers of the mughals indicating the prowess of sea thus from the vistas of sea the political history of south asia can be mirrored thank you so much for that chaya so now let's turn to the book and its chapters the book tackles many themes and takes on a long durée perspective from the early modern to the 21st century in 15 highly readable chapters can you share with us how you organized the book chronologically and thematically Well, maybe the easiest thing to to do is to say that the the biggest challenge for us <clears throat> was to uh organize the chapters in a way that was different from the conference. The conference was was uh as I think we indicate in the introduction, the the conference papers were organized more in a strictly chronological way. And as we looked at it and looked at the the papers that we felt uh, were uh worthy to be chapters it it didn't make as much sense so we decided that it was important especially since my keynote was very specifically historiographical that we would organize the first section around issues of historiography and uh and method and sources and then uh and then in that you know then the other two uh sections on commodities and connections if you like um really made sort of fell into place um there's relatively uh little if you think about it on diaspora as such but uh and I'll get to this eventually I want to say something specifically about uh, the final chapter by uh, Abdul Sharif uh but uh it made it I think the papers made good sense this way and as we say in the introduction all of the papers uh as is the kind of metier of historians in general all of the papers talk about uh the specific sources and the methods being used but uh but we felt that it was possible to sort of organize uh organize the sections of the book as we did and to have this first section uh following my long historiography uh, chapter um to have them be on methods and sources Yes, uh, it was absolutely a juggling exercise, and thematically we divided into three broad categories. And first, as uh, Professor Alper said, incorporates a discussion on historiography and historical discourses on Gujarat to highlight the interlocking circularities. A segment on commodities was drafted, and the last part accommodates trading, uh, trading linkages, and diaspora. since uh, thematic uh, coherence was not enough to justify a long timeline we intercepted it with the chronological uh, chapter uh, chapterization also so the chronological scope of the uh, volume is deep as it is uh, uh, as its geographical range so um, and um, chronologically also uh, volume spans uh, uh, two millennia and uh, geographically it ranges uh, from the red sea to southeast 
Asia also uh, along with the Indian Ocean, Western Indian Ocean. So it needed a kind of juggling, but we were successful in structuring and placing the entire idea of trans regionality in a book. Thank you so much for, for that, Professors Goswami and Alpers. So let us begin with the first chapter by Nad, um, titled 40 Years On. In this chapter, you provide a historiographical review of the major works on Gujarat published in the last few decades. Can you briefly elaborate on this historiography of trade and traders? What was the contribution of scholars such as Michael Pearson's Pioneering Merchants and Rulers in Gujarat, published in 1976, and Ashindas Gupta's Indian Merchants and the Decline of Surat, published in 1979. Sure. Uh, well, of course, both of these were seminal works, and, and uh, Mike Pearson has made many more uh, contributions to uh, both uh, South Asian and to Indian Ocean history than just his initial uh, book. And the same, of course, is true for Ashindas Gupta, who whose uh, many works are uh, have had uh, enormous influence on on historians of of India in particular. I think what was interesting for me is that, uh, as I as I indicated before, uh, Pearson and I were really uh, are really age mates. I mean, we're we're literally I think we're born within months of each other. Uh, our first books came out. Uh, more or less at the same time, mine in 75, 76. Uh, and so it made sense uh, to, to start with, with him. And also because Pearson's, you know, in Pearson's book, he argues very strongly for, uh, as you say, a divide between the maritime side of Gujarati, of, of well, Western Indian history, uh, and, uh, and continent, subcontinental history. And makes you know the case that that rulers, uh, political rulers, the rulers of states, were were not particularly interested in in uh, in trade. This has uh, led, as I indicated in the chapter, really creates a whole literature of people agreeing and disagreeing, and then agreeing a little bit, and then disagreeing again. Uh, so it's a classic historiographical uh, contrast, and I think the. Pearson's, uh, Pearson himself kind of adjusts his interpretation later in his career, but this book really set uh, the cat among the pigeons in this uh, by by taking such a bold stance. Uh, Thus, Gupta's main contribution uh, is, I think, to to really focus on traders and both traders as and on Surat, of course. As as uh, uh, as a group, but also as individual uh, important merchants, uh, he brings a kind of a a, a human side to uh, to his work that is that is really important in historiography. But I suppose, especially since our meeting was held in Surat, that that what's most controversial about his book, his work, and which uh, then spurred itself, like Pearson's work, uh, uh, subsequent studies, was his argument for the decline of Surat in the 18th century. And, and this, is some, this is a theme which is taken up by a number of scholars, uh, 
a number of the contributions to our to our volume. And so these two books are especially important uh, in the history of trade and traders uh, in Gujarat. The other thing it's worth worth pointing out about uh, Pearson's work in particular is that it's its range is Western India. And you would ask uh, before about the significance of Gujarat in the context of South Asian history. And uh, Chaya gave a, a, a wonderfully comprehensive response. But you can say the same thing about an area like Malabar or the Coromandel, uh, the Coromandel Coast. And I think it's uh, each of these areas has developed within the last 25, 30 years uh, a new and rich and kind of parallel uh, series of studies uh, that uh, that complement each other and that make it, I think, make one realize that you can't simply look at the big, you know, the uh, intrusion of the South Asian subcontinent into the Indian Ocean and just take it as a single entity. You have to break, you have to look more carefully at the different subregions, see how, how and where and when they interacted with uh, traders and pilgrims and uh, travelers uh, from other parts of the Indian Ocean and, in fact, uh, from other parts of the world over time. So, uh, and I think Pearson's work, Pearson's initial work, really spans that gap, that definition of Gujarat that, that at one point included uh, Mumbai, Bombay as it was then, uh, and now, of course, is, is differently defined by the political geography of modern India. So, Sanjay Subramaniam has argued that states needed trade and traders, even as commercial activity needed to come to terms with political power. How has this argument been taken on by subsequent scholars, and what are its implications for how we think about the economic and the political? Does the historiographical debate around Mughal decline and decentralization appear different than viewed from Gujarat, as Samira Sheikh suggests in her chapter? Yes, certainly. Um, uh, state or uh, sovereign powers uh, and their ambivalent relations with the traders make an interesting argument. And uh, expanding upon uh, what Subramaniam has said, Lakshmi Subramaniam uh, have you know in her work uh, has expanded on the uh, on the construct uh, on this construct in her book on sovereigns and pirates. Uh, Gurusharan Das also suggested to me to develop uh, on the idea of strong state and strong society. So for uh, Gujarat, uh, though had a strong mercantile and seafaring society, uh, it was not always the case with the state of Gujarat because of the semi-feudal structure of the Girasias, uh, that is the landholders and uh, bhayats, the kinsmen. Uh, there were contesting authorities and that's why there was no single dialogue between the state and the uh, uh, traders. Instead, there were diverse uh, stakeholders, including the Mughal governors. As a result, when the Mughal uh, decline took place, the provincial politics reached its peak in Gujarat. For, uh, for the numero uh, unos of uh, Mughal, provincial uh, government rushed to secure their political position. For instance, Nazims of Ahmedabad, and it changed the dynamics of polity then. Or uh, Mughal governors, uh, governor, uh, 
of Surat Sheikh Beg Khan negotiated with the East India Company to retain Surat's importance. Uh, disintegration of uh, central Mughal power resonated in the provinces and how the Europeans took up the advantage by uh, undermining the importance of uh, its legendary port or the Maratha Mulagiri paved uh, its way to Gujarat, leveling further damages to its commerce. And finally, how the princely states emerged powerful in the regional politics is all about uh, uh, this particular question uh, to be answered in that way. You know, just as a footnote to that, uh, to go back to your original question, Kelvin, uh, Sanjay, uh, who is, of course, one of my colleagues and a good friend at UCLA, Sanjay uh, is, you know, somebody who has... Uh, in more than one place, disagreed with Mike Pearson's uh, original thesis, uh, and uh, and what's interesting is is here's a case where, for the most part, uh, although he has certainly he has written at least one really important essay about that involves Gujarat, most of his work is not about uh, Gujarat. But what he has to say and the way in which he says it has had profound influence on on the modern historiography of uh, India and of, and of trade. One of the other things that, uh, that I think people, that comes through in a number of the chapters here, uh, sometimes specifically stated and sometimes not, is his whole notion of connected histories, uh, which has had obviously really important, uh, major impact on the way in which uh, a number of people approach world history in particular. And that also affects the history of uh, Gujarat, which is uh, maritime Gujarat history, is nothing if not connected uh, uh, history. So it's an important uh, an important intervention, and uh, and uh, and is part of that part of that historiographical toing and froing that uh, began with with uh, Pearson's uh, 1976 book. I see. And in the same chapter, Professor Alpis, you address the ancient and medieval historiography of Gujarat, as is Philip Bourgeois in Gujarat and Long Distance Street and Himanshu Prabhare in Early Historic Gujarat. Could you elaborate a bit more on how Gujarat became a major actor in exchanges in and around the Indian Ocean during this period? Was the commercial role of Gujarat something that was something that extended back into the ancient and medieval periods as well? Well, I think it goes back farther than that. I mean, when you start, when you look at how to the deep history of, uh, of the Western Indian Ocean uh, and look at things like the exchange of food crops, mainly from uh, Africa to India, but also from India and China through India to Africa, and then look at uh, the uh, early Early states, uh, you know, looking at the Persian Gulf area, and uh, and in Gujarat uh, at uh, the Harappan uh, civilization, there were you know there were connections running through this area that go back several millennia. So that in some ways, the fact of both the uh, and of course the use of terms like ancient and medieval and Indian historiography. Are sometimes confusing, but if even to take uh, Himanshu Ray's piece going back into the first millennium of the current era, 
that's fairly recent in that context. So both, I think, both her piece and uh, Philippe Bojar's a piece, which is a you know is a summary of his massive two-volume uh, history of the Indian Ocean uh, to 1500, which has just recently been translated into English uh, from Cambridge. Uh, that uh, that their perspectives fit into a longer, much longer history of uh, human and commercial exchanges uh, around the northwest rim of the uh, Indian Ocean. So what archives have previous scholars primarily drawn on to narrate this history of Surat's commercial history and its connections to the wider Indian Ocean world? Well, scholars uh, like Ashindas Gupta and Om Prakash heavily relied on East India Company and VOC records. Uh, gradually, that trend is changing, though. And, uh, you know, the f- scholars are now uh, uh, using the uh, diverse archives. Uh, since uh, Ranbir Chakravarti's work is based on the published Geniza records, it entices the future scholar to rethink on the Gujarat and Malabar's uh, trading network by reconsulting the original Geniza records. However, uh, Chakravarti's work is imperative as he was, he has, uh, you know, sketched uh, references of Gujarat's oceanic uh, positioning by corroborating the Geniza records with uh, the Sanskrit records, such as Katha, Sarita Sagar and Lekha Padati. So his work gives an overview of maritime Gujarat in the 11th and 12th century, a period of shift from ancient to medieval times in Indian context. Yeah, and I think that uh, obviously the besides the company records, uh, scholar, he's not the only one, but the in our book, uh, Pedro Machado's chapter, you know, is using Portuguese sources uh, to illuminate uh, the trade of of, uh, of Gujarat and 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 the Indian Ocean, but uh, but when you move further back in time, obviously uh, this is where attention to things like archaeology and uh, and and everything that sort of flows from archaeology uh, 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 has been been really uh, critical for reconstructing uh, er- the earlier history, and so. Uh, that's why the last part of my chapter sort of focuses on that, and you can, and and in a way this also leads into uh, uh, the work. I know you, we've got a question coming up about uh, Ranavir Chakrabarti's chapter, uh, but uh, it's you know he's more than in not just in our chapter, but in several a number of papers he's written about. Uh, using the the Geniza sources uh, from 12th century, 13th century uh, Jewish merchants in the Western Indian Ocean. And in this context, although the book has very little to say about Gujarat, it's worth mentioning, since I focus on some of her work, on Elizabeth uh, Lambert's work, uh, uh, Abraham's luggage had not yet been published, but it's in, for anybody listening to this podcast who wants to know about the medieval history of uh, the Western Indian Ocean. That's a critical book to read, uh, both for its just for its sheer interest, uh, but also because uh, it's methodologically, uh, it's quite a remarkable uh, piece of work uh, 
in terms of how you use uh, different kinds of different kinds of literary sources and the incredible work it takes to make them legible in the broadest sense. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot out there, and there's more being discovered in terms of maps and you know indigenous maps and uh, and, and uh, uh, rudders, things like this, uh, sailors' manuals. Uh, uh, Fahad Bishara's work is really important here. So there's more Arabic sources that are coming into play. Uh, there's a there is a, a great deal that I think uh, can still be drawn and reminds us once again that to work in the Indian Ocean, uh, it's not enough for an individual to be multilingual. There really has to be teams of people working who uh, who can work with different kinds of sources and different languages as well. Thank you for that. So let's have a broader conversation about historiography method and sources. In particular, I'm thinking that the merchant capitalist has remained the central pivotal figure in the history of Gujarat, especially in a lot of micro histories of business families and entrepreneurs. However, in Gujarat in the history of the Indian Ocean, Lakshmi Subramanian writes that among the most significant shifts to emerge in a recent historiography of the Indian Ocean and of maritime Gujarat has been the study of law and piracy, and that of Muslim seafaring and sailing practices in the Western Indian Ocean, both inspired by the idea of space and speciality as produced through legal jurisdiction, migration, and mobility. So how has this expanded or refined the ways we think about economic history in Gujarat, and what methodologies are available to us to start thinking about seafaring, sailors, and subaltern resistance? Uh, well... Let, let me take a crack at that. I mean, I think the the first thing that every people need to recognize if they don't already is that piracy itself as a concept is very much in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so if you see piracy just as a bunch of, you know, kind of Jolly Roger kind of marauders, uh, it it does it's not going to be very helpful. But if you see piracy as a form of economic enterprise, uh, some of which is uh, pretty illegitimate, but some of which, a large part of which is seasonal, uh, but you know people who sometimes are making their their way by exploiting either their uh, land-based crops or or their uh, maritime resources, and then who in certain times of the year when conditions are propitious, uh, take to raiding whoever comes by, therefore becoming pirates. Uh, and sometimes that leads into further development. But but I think that, the, and that actually connects to the whole notion of space. I mean, if you're looking at, um, uh, oh, you know, land-based groups, which sometimes resort to piracy, it really has to do with the space that that, that they're choosing to it's like, like rotating fields, uh, if you think of it in the agricultural sense, you know, that, that farmers don't always farm the same fields. They have to let them lie fallow. Um, and, uh, and any smart farmer has got, if, if he or she has got the wherewithal, will have fields in different areas. And so space really, really is an important, is an important concept. And I think the, the way in which that feeds into uh, more ocean in maritime history, something Mike Pearson 
always called for, is, uh, is by trying to understand what life on, you know, life on board these ships is like. And this is very hard to get at. There's a, there's a lot of this, this kind of information for the modern period and for European ships. There's there, something that's been overlooked by a lot of us, I think, in, in the recent historiography, is how much work was done uh, of this sort on uh, by early scholars, early post-World War II, and actually before that, scholars of Portuguese expansion, looking at the Carrera de India. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, there's differences of being on a uh, Gujarati or a, uh, or a Persian Gulf Dao, or a Kuwaiti Dao, let's say, from being on a Portuguese uh, caravel. But they are, they do share the fact that there's ships on the sea, and, and each ship is a kind of a, is a, a microcosm uh, or a microcosmic society itself. It sort of, you know, it has a very hierarchical uh, form. It has certain ways you have to feed, feed people, you have to be able to deal with the weather. You, there are all kinds of technical things that need to be considered. So I think that that the the way in which space and spatiality, and then how that leads to, uh, and the kind of legal jurisdictions that help to uh, make commercial exchange possible because once, I mean, legality is not so much a problem when you're on the high sea, uh, unless you then are attacking another ship. Where this really comes into play is when you pull into port and you have to trade uh, and deal with the whoever the authorities are in the port. So having common ways of uh, addressing this whether it's by a kind of a general acceptance of Islamic law or other uh, other means of adjudicating differences becomes really, really important. And this has a lot to do with the, the movement of ships across in the Indian Ocean. There's actually an interesting uh, conference that's coming up on, on uh, in Singapore. I think it's starting tomorrow, a, a virtual conference that Tenzin Seng Sen has organized uh, or is doing a keynote on on, on uh, floating cosmopolitanism. And that's another aspect of this, which I think is really important and provocative. Perfect. So let's turn to um, let's turn to Chai's contribution in this volume, which is her stellar chapter, Coffee Mocha. But before that, let's step back and talk about commodity histories as a genre, which finds precedent in works such as Sidney Mintz's Study of Sugar, Sven Beckett's work on cotton, or Marshall Sutherland's essay on Hawaiian sandalwood. What is valuable about commodity histories, and what can it teach us? By highlighting the way in which uh, the trade flows uh, connected different physical and social and cultural spheres, a history of the commodity exchange illuminates uh, how exchange occurred within the diverse economic frameworks. It also reveals the fluidity of literal economic spaces and the nexus that merchants' networks had developed with the literal states and societies. Mm. In fact, the theme uh, which runs common or uh, 
even uh, contrasts with uh, each other is that commodities were procured the way com- commodities were procured and its uh, circularities were facilitated by the mercantile group in a dynamic environment so it was through commercial connectivity and commodity exchange people experienced globalization locally as the intercoastal exchanges of merchandise were uh, finally disposed to local uh, markets the narratives around com- commodities exhibits the idea of global connectivity interestingly commodities offer a forum of research on the historical relations between the businesses and their larger political cultural institutional and social economic context so the commodities like uh, namely um, pearls ivory gum copal connected the arabian shores and african interior and mainland with the industries of america and europe and manufacturing units of bombay presidency and rajputana and uh, the ivory trade uh, uh, assessed the impact of certain imperatives of the cultures of consumption of the west and uh, um, india as a uh, and india as commodities were sold and traded in a variety of social cultural settings this single article supplied chiefly through the kachi ivory merchants was utilized variously in the oriental uh, and uh, the western spaces which uh, represented distinct consumer culture so the industrially advanced west could accrue uh, the greater benefits by leading the mass scale manufacturing of the piano and billiard balls but the indian unit could transform this highly prized substance into mere bangles combs toiletries boxes and toys so without much of the large scale production in the absence of uh, machinery plants on the other hand ivory industries in connecticut and ivory ton generated greater employment opportunities on the uh, uh, you know and uh, when it comes to indian ivory workers uh, they struggled for uh, their daily requirements so irrespective of the huge contrast in making and use of dental substance uh, both the uh, spaces contributed in uh, making the ivory merchants rich and uh, disturbing uh, the eco- eco- ecological balance of africa so the study of commodity consumption on the historical context behind the developed taste of consumer as materially socially and culturally engrafted processes so uh, i have and they have uh, offered binding insights into how societies communities and people create and maintain status and identities so thank you so much for that so let's delve into your chapter coffee mocha where you provide a fine grain deeply detailed history of coffee production and circulation across the indian ocean i have a question about surat but before that can you tell us a bit more about whether there was anything exceptional about the story of coffee how was it different qualitatively or quantitatively from other comparable commodities important to the indian ocean region uh, the use of coffee seems to have spread uh, rapidly from northeastern africa to turkey and then toward to iran and it was in circulation in the uh, city of mecca by 1511 so with the conquest of uh, mamluk uh, egypt by the ottoman turks in 1517 coffee drinking became widespread in cairo the court physician to suleiman uh, i mean uh, to suleiman the magnificent approved its use of medicinal 
purposes in 1522 so within a few decades coffee was enjoyed across entire islamic world from north africa to the mughal empire in india and from being ceremonial drink of sufi mystics in the course of about the century coffee became a part of the social and architectural fabric of the islamic countries so it was a symbol of uh, uh, hospitality and uh, sociality also and coffee drinking also reflected social stratification uh, mandana limbert uh, argues uh, that only the most powerful had coffee even when there was a plenty coming through the port of muscat interestingly even in india the bulk of coffee mocha was uh, re-exported from surat bombay and manvi it was not a popular drink for a long time so again we have a contrasting material history around coffee coffee was very much a part of indian ocean trading system um, but more than that uh, i think uh, the popularity of coffee in iran instigated the dutch and the dutch tried to already uh, on it through surat and then uh, later on from so the you know as a as a part of the indian ocean trading system uh, coffee coffee and subsequent introduction of coffee in europe signal the beginning of global circulation system the range of merchandises which were in demand in arabia were uh, multifold but uh, very important commodity uh, or the exotic uh, item i mean leaving this uh, leaving uh, way behind the exotic special items uh, bullion uh, took uh, took over the entire you know uh, ex- uh, or you can say uh, shifted the balance of trade uh, however the chief corollary uh, uh, of this uh, bullion trade depended upon its market and one thing one of the interesting things about studying commodities and it's something i'm thinking about because uh it's one of the kind of students follow a commodity you know do a paper on a commodity or research it or something like is that in in the case of uh that chai is studying production was was peasant production you know people uh of very i mean were were producing it as and then uh Uh, both at first in north in northeast africa and then in the highlands of yemen uh but as coffee production expands and remember that although mocha is one of the ways and you know that coffee has that that place has become a word for for one kind of coffee uh java is the other uh and although there's nothing in our book about it, it but coffee production in java is organized you know through the dutch colonial system uh as it is subsequently in brazil and the other parts you know in in the atlantic world so that the nature of the production itself uh quite apart from how it's marketed uh go, you know runs the gamut of being both peasant production and continuing in some cases to be peasant production and also being massive uh plantation production uh and and so that's i think that's an interesting way in which 
in which, in particular, agricultural commodities uh, uh, or, or tree products, if you want to consider them agricultural, uh, how the nature of production can change over time and with historical circumstances, uh, even though the commodity itself may be, uh, quote, unchanged. That's really interesting because in Chaya's chapter, we see how Surat's control over the coffee trade was gradually challenged by the entry of maritime players from places like Muscat and Manvi. So how did the trade of coffee influence the rerouting of trading networks in the Arabian and Red Seas? And was the trade in coffee a significant force in what, in where and how traders could go to the different ports in the Indian Ocean? Well, following Oman's uh, successful expulsion of the Portuguese from Oman in 1650 and from Mombasa um, half a century later, Oman's powerful fleet controlled the sea lanes of the Arabian Sea. And these uh, political developments brought about a plethora of changes in the Ar- Arabian Gulf politics and also influenced the coffee trade of Mocha. So, indeed, these... Um, Victories made it possible for Oman to assert uh, control over the coffee trade of Mocha. The syndicate of Omani uh, coffee merchants by the turn of the 17th century had uh, firmly established and had the negotiation power. So by this time, Muscat uh, was very much contesting with uh, other coffee supplying ports, perhaps was gearing up to challenge Surat and the companies in the 18th century. Um, uh, the change came uh, with the change in rule Yarubi, uh, who, you know, uh, from um, uh, Oma, uh, India and Yemen and Africa and the Persian Gulf uh, uh, trading activities, uh, uh, they they play they kind of try to situate uh, themselves. So most importantly, Basra's preeminence was tested in the Gulf trade. In the early decades of the 18th century, the Oman Omani threatened several Persian ports, conquering the island of Bahrain in 1717. This rising control uh, over the Gulf politics and the economy opened up many opportunities for Muscat. One uh, took uh, from the steering of the supply of coffee in Persia and Basra through. Uh, uh, Muscat also, and uh, for Muscat, the Basra trading links with uh, uh, around six major trading areas, in, including India, proved to be advantageous. So the coffee trade of Mocha accelerated trading activities of Basra with Yemen, but channeled uh, mainly through Muscat. By the turning of the turning of the 18th century, the rapidly changing politics of the Persian Gulf and rise of Eastern Arabian power. Um, of Muscat shook the position of Surat in the Gulf, for Gulf indeed had a rival to face as far as the trade in the Gulf and the Red Sea was concerned. Over time, the increasing English uh, uh, shipping in the sea lanes of Arabia and the rise of Muscat fleet uh, monopolized the Mo- uh, Mocha coffee trade. The second phase, uh, uh, when al uh, facilitated the dominance, uh, was also again interesting because here the merchants of Manvi played a significant role in undermining the supply of coffee cargoes to Surat. So the growing commercial energy and concentration of Manvi merchants 
both at Muscat and uh, Bombay added to the problems faced by Surat. Not only did they command a large share in the Muscat's coffee trade, but they controlled its supply chain to Bombay. The merchant's fleet uh, of smaller ships such as Portia's and Dinghy's from Mandvi and Muscat comfortably competed with big ships owners from Surat and other uh, country traders. So, in their maritime trade networks across the Arabian Sea, the VOC and EIC had little control. For instance, Mocha in 1749, the Sur, uh, uh, Surat and VOC ships received a muted response because their trade was pulled away by much smaller ships merchants from Muscat and Manvi. This was largely because of the fact that they are not, uh, they were quite uh, customized kind of shipping uh, or uh, shipbuilding uh, was going on in the process. So this flexibility freed them from the market regulation and they they could follow their own selling and buying rates more easily. And this is how, you know, Surat uh, was somewhere challenged. And then Bombay joins the entire trade network. So uh, the effects were, effects were long-lasting as far as uh, the more coffee mocha trade was concerned. And uh, of course, the pilgrim uh, vessels uh, which could sail from mocha also uh, uh, and Haruda, uh, they uh, they also kind of you know uh, helped in rerouting the uh, trade uh, to the Red Sea at the beginning or middle of the month of May, uh, in particular when it comes to south west monsoon. So seasonality is also leading up here, and the coffee was then unloaded at Muscat and that. Uh, which was not meant for the consumption of the people in the town or for sale to the Bedouins uh, or the neighboring pa uh, provinces, according to Welsed, were transported to smaller boats to Bahrain, Basra and southern parts of the Persian Gulf. So this is how coffee trade network uh, expanded considerably under Mus um, uh, when Muscat became one of the emporiums. Right. Thank you so much for, for that really detailed answer. I, I'm also thinking along the lines of commodity histories, I'm thinking about the narrative of South Asia's cotton industries and other textile industries, which has really been a predominant commodity when you mentioned South Asian economic history for a lot of people. However, recent scholars have now nuanced this meta-narrative by era, by Indian subregion, by artisan class, and by commodity. So to broaden this out and drawing on the chapters by Sarah Fee, Martha Shakelin, and Nisha Manzar, how should we nuance the categories of British, Indian, Gujarati, or Kachi when we're looking at transoceanic trade, either in ivory, coffee, or textile? Well, in, in a way, uh, you provide, you know, the question provides its answer. The uh, <clears throat> Rather than although it's useful sometimes to sort of make lumping uh, categories to say, you know, Indian trade or something like that. The, the, uh, the regionalization of, of uh, commodities takes us a lot further. And then within that, uh, to, well, if you were to, to break down Gujarati, if you're talking, there's, there's going to be a big difference as to whether you're talking about Let's say uh, Vanilla from Deal or uh, or different groups of Kachi traders. I mean, 
there in fact i've i've in some of the work i've done just the materials i've been looking at uh recently trying to figure out which indian traders are trading at a at a particular point in the 19th century in mozambique is really difficult because the portuguese all assume uh or and some of the secondary uh scholars that they, they must all be Banyans, so to speak. Uh, but once you have uh, more and more traders, come, Muslims coming down from Zanzibar, they're going to be, uh, they're, different, they're different groups. They're, uh, and, and it's hard to figure out exactly who they are and where they are. But that's, that's important because the networks depend very much, trading networks depend on trust, and trust depends on, family for the most part. Uh, it's hard to break into those trust networks uh, otherwise. So I think it, so. that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about what these categories mean, uh, I was just looking, looking at your question. I was reminded of a comment that uh, one of my former students, quite brilliant, John Thornton, made uh, about European accounts of the Kingdom of Congo. Uh, and he said, you know, when somebody from a small Italian uh, town goes out to, to, let's say, 17th century Congo as a missionary and describes uh, the capital of the king of Congo, a massive city, uh, you have to remember where he's coming from. He's a small town boy coming from someplace, as opposed to somebody, a, a priest who's coming out from Lisbon. And says, ah, this isn't so much. So a lot of a lot of the descriptions we have uh, uh, of commodities and of uh, and goods in general and 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 the context that's in which they're situated depends on where somebody comes from. In this category of British, it just reminded me that there's a big difference uh, between Scottish explorers in Southern Africa and British explorers in Southern Africa in terms of how they describe things and what they think about things. So all of these, in other words, it's a two-way thing. It's not simply the the good, the, the, the people themselves or the areas that are producing them, but it's also the way in which they're described and how they're understood uh, in the popular context of, of, of the period in which, you know, in, in which we're discussing it, which is, gets to your point about how these things have been uh, made more nuanced by era, subregion, artisan, commodity, um, and it helps. And, and so, it uh, a good example of that actually of of how uh, nuanced this can get is in the work that Pedro Machado has done on the textile trade to Mozambique, uh, which he argues very vigorously and very convincingly is is uh, linked to a specific area. Uh, uh, of Gujarat, which produces both indigo and the cloth. Turn, uh, thank you so much for, for that really detailed response. And now turning to Trading Networks and Diaspora, which is the final section of the book, with contributions by Ruby Maloney, Pedro Machado, Radhika Seshan, and Abdul Sharif, let's perhaps start by talking about who Tefratansi Purushutam is, who is the main protagonist of Calvin Allen's chapter. And more broadly, what role did the Gujarati Banyan merchants of Musket play 
in the transregional trade linking that port to India, the Persian Gulf, and East Africa. So, Seth, uh, Ratansi Pushotam was a Kachi Bhatia who started his career as an apprentice to his uncle Natha Makan's firm. And as time elapsed, he independently established his own trading uh, firm and enterprise and eventually merged his uncle's firm to his own. He, alike other Bhatias, uh, uh, other Bhatias traded uh, first in dates and forged a trading partnership with American uh, uh, enterprise of William Hills, who approached him for the supply of our dates for uh, the Thanksgiving uh, business. From the dates merchant, he became an arms dealer and extend, uh, extended his trading horizon to the uh, German and Belgian gun manufacturing works. He was one of the leading arms importer of Muscat and his trading enterprise enabled him to make fortunes, uh, win customs collection uh, franchise and also own considerable properties in the waterfront area of Muscat. Uh, also, uh, he was the owner of date cleaning factories, claiming the spaces of the shore and the port, the custom house and the warehouse. He threaded spatial relations, carving out new landscapes of acquaintances and um, pulling together dispersed localities in unforeseen and novel ways. As from straightforward dates dealer, he could morph into powerful arms dealer. So the Gujarati Bhatias, Khojas, Boras, who were lumped under an umbrella term Banyan, shaped up uh, a broad triangular trading relations between Kach, Muscat and Zanzibar through the interlocking network finance and financial circulations, uh, commodity exchange and market uh, formation. They had profitably linked interior and hinterlands of Muscat and Kach, uh, Muscat, Kach and Zanzibar with each other and their commodity of uh, commodity uh, or or more than commodity, you know, the commonality of their trading practices and mercantile ethos won them many business opportunities dealing in the high value commodities such as pearls, arms and ivory. They created global trading linkages, especially through Bombay. Um, and their trades were financed by various sorts of capital. One among them is of the Goswami monks who had uh, planted their farms in Muscat and also financed the trading operations of the Persian Gulf and Zanzibar. And similarly, Zanzibar-based merchants invested in Muscat and the Persian Gulf trade. So the complexity of financial circulation they were able to achieve. So now turning to the final chapter by Abdul Sharif, how do post-colonial ruptures such as the Zanzibari revolution or decolonization more broadly impact the life of the Gujarati diaspora scattered across the Indian Ocean. What remains of these connections today? Well, um, I was especially pleased that, uh, that we were able to convince Abdul Sharif to, to uh, do this formal paper from his informal talk at the conference. I'd heard him talk about his, I've known Abdul for years, uh, and uh, I've heard him talk about his family history, his personal background, and his experience of of when he first first went to India uh, and was, you know, assumed that he was Indian. Uh, so his so his 
piece is, I think, especially important because it reminds us that not every not every person from the one part of the world to another is part of a diaspora uh, necessarily in the way in which they see it. As he says, he's a Zanzibari. He's a fifth generation Zanzibari. And he grew up speaking Swahili. It's a very, you know, he not, uh, it's a very different concept of, of diaspora. It also is, an, his piece is also important. Uh, and then I'll get to the Zanzibar revolution in, in, uh, in that it re- also reminds us that, uh, so particularly in the case of India, that uh, the the Indian state has very aggressively, uh, in the last what twenty years, and more recently, reached out to Indians abroad. Uh, and this is a much more. I mean, we're not talking about fifth generation here, uh, but people are really uh, have been. Uh, made to feel part of a diaspora, and there's government, you know, government off. There's a government office that's been committed to this. So very often, the per, so the perception of somebody like uh, Abdul Sharif of, uh, as a Zanzibari of, of Gujarati background uh, is very different from that of how he would be regarded by the, uh, you know a state organization that is seeking to connect all Indians overseas. Uh, so I think in the case of Zanzibar, obviously, uh, uh, there was a great deal of bloodshed and violence and very ill will uh, at the time of the revolution that sort of represented the whole way in which the British had set up Zanzibar as a colonial protectorate. Uh, and so Indians, uh, like Arabs, were uh, were severely uh uh, affected by this. Uh, and I think that that stands more generally for people of, uh, of a, shall we say, exotic origin in any society. So, for example, uh, the Chinese in Indonesia uh, have, you know, Chinese in Southeast Asia, but in Indonesia have been scapegoats uh, on many different occasions for uh, domestic problems. You know, you're looking for a way to deal with the frustration of the society. You point to outsiders, Jews, Chinese, Armenians. uh, And, uh, you know, this is all very relevant in a world, on a world scale. Just think of the United States uh, uh, always and certainly at, at, at its present time, uh, on the one hand, you know, migrants uh, and and immigrants have have been essential. Uh, I mean, the whole society is an immigrant society at one level, and yet uh, immigrants are scape can be scapegoated. So, so whether you think of this in terms of diaspora or uh, of the trading networks or whatever, people who are different. Are always liable to uh, to persecution, and in, to take the Zanzibar Revolution again, uh, in the broader sense of East Africa, the uh, way in which Idi Amin, uh, in the, the former president of Uganda, used uh, Indians as a scapegoat 
and then the way in which that spilled into attitudes towards Indians in Kenya and to a lesser extent in mainland Tanzania caused a great exodus of uh, you know much of the much of the uh, Asian South Asian population of the UK dates to that period uh, when people left. Now people have, many people have gone a number of people have gone back to East Africa. So it depends on the it depends on the situation. But there too, it's worth noting. And here's a difference with Zanzibar, where where uh, at least before the colonial the British colonial period, uh, even if certain uh, Gujaratis had been favored by the Omani rulers, there were many others who were just traitors there. Uh, in in East Africa, uh, in colonial East Africa. There's the you know the figure of the so-called Dukawala, the the Indian uh, shopkeeper who who controlled who was sort of the intermediary between African consumers and the whites who actually ran the white settlers in Kenya who actually who actually ran things and and stole most of the land and the people who are closest to you become the ones who who you uh, often take your you know, whose shops you burn uh, and who get kicked out. And that's what happened uh, in the 70s in, in East Africa. So I think the post-colonial ruptures have impacted the lives of Gujaratis uh, of every stripe. It really has had very little to do with their individual uh, religious practices or whether they were bureaucrats, uh, you know, state bureaucrats or small merchants or big merchants and only the largest, you know, most secure have been able to, were able to maintain themselves. And the connections are, uh, are different. It's if there's levels of nostalgia, I know in Southern California, uh, there are a number of Ismaili Jamat Khanas and, uh, some of the people I've talked to there, uh, at least twenty some years ago, looked at East Africa as you know as their home, but they knew they couldn't go back, partly because they'd been told to to go out, you know, but also uh, it represented a time when they were particularly uh, favored and you know or had a certain protection in the colonial era. Uh, Post colonial period has changed that, and so. How those connections remain, they probably remain in, in uh, uh, clubs and societies and connections to what may or may not be considered their homeland uh, in, uh, in India or, or Pakistan. Uh, this, uh, it's, it's an interesting question, even more so given the fact that Kamala Harris has just, <laughs> has just been nominated to be vice president on the Democratic uh, ticket because you know, her mother was from, from, uh, India. Uh, and, uh, she's, she's a first generation, uh, native born American. There's, you know, the, this is a process that is continual. It's not, it's not something that's simply historical. Uh, and so I think that whenever one thinks about diasporas and the, and the networks of people and how they have moved about the world, you have to kind of be careful not to mix up it's important to kind of see how the present attitudes and present uh, 
uh, developments might affect how people see themselves. But, but it's important, I think, for scholars, for historians, not to confuse the present with the past. Uh, and that's, uh, or, or to see the present as being an inevitable product of the past. These are, uh, these are kind of truisms for, for historians, but they're important to remind ourselves of from time to time. Thank you so much for, for that, Ned. So before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read a paragraph from the book? Huh. What paragraph would you want us to read? <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the, 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 the opening paragraph of the book, the, the analogy to beads in a string. In the introduction? Yeah. Well, Taya, do you want to do you want to read that? Because that very much depends on on you, since I'm not the one who can read Gujarati. <laughs> That's something that was that was a contribution that, that, that as very obviously uh, Taya. <laughs> so, do you want to read that, Taya, or do you want me to Please read it? Please go ahead. You only read it. Okay. All right. All right. So. With the understanding that it comes from China. Like beads in a string, be it Kach, Saurashtra, Gujarat, or Hindustan, for a thousand years the Daryalal, the sea, has played a fundamental role in the history of Gujarat. And therefore, the sea is indeed worthy of study and thought. End quote. Thus writes. Gundvantrai Acharya in his thrilling novel Sarkarbar. He insightfully identifies the sea as a significant and enriching thread of the annals of Gujarat. Quote, Those who ignore the sea will never completely understand our region or country's history, he cautions. Indeed, as reflected in his narrative, Acharya rightly understood the impact of the sea on the long literal of Gujarat for its social, commercial, and cultural life. Clearly, the sea was quite momentous in shaping the history of Gujarat. More than a decade ago, Acharya anticipated his pain to the sea in Daryalal when he emphasized the thousand-year history of attempts by outsiders to conquer or dominate one port after another from Kathiawar to Samnath Patan and Diu to Manvi. In a certain sense, Acharya mirrored the long durée perspective of the analysts when he interlaced his writings around the sea in assessing the maritime past of Gujarat. And why not? For the sea was quite central to Gujarat's long and eventful history. Well, Chaya Anand, I've taken up a lot of your time. So what are you working on now? Can you tell us a bit about your current and future projects around Gujarat? Mine are more limited. I'm currently uh, and and not connected. One of the, the most connected is that I'm st- still working on chapters for a primer for teaching Indian Ocean history with uh, Dodie McDowell. Uh, and so Gujarat keeps on popping up uh, when I'm looking for things to suggest, to, you know, potential teachers uh, as to what they may look at. But 
But my own work right now is really on, uh, I'm doing a lot of work on northern Mozambique in the 19th century, having to do with slavery and abolition and the transition to uh, uh, the modern colonial regime. Uh, so Gujarat right now is in my rearview mirror, uh, although it's always on my mind. Uh, and any time I step into the Indian Ocean, it's right there. What about you, my Maya? current uh, work is a book project on the maritime trade and piracy in the Gulf of Kutch. After chasing the merchants, I am chasing the pirates who love chasing the merchants. So uh, initially, this research on piracy was a part of my dissertation. But uh, I had already cast a wider net over three literal spaces of Kutch and Zanzibar. And good, I uh, did not include that in my book because now I am in a. I think I am in a better position to do justice to it, with a range of sources consulted, including the Portuguese records. In fact, these uh, very records uh, pushed the timeline uh, which I initially had set to 1780 to now 1650, and I am quite excited to share the kind of sources I have come across, and it would according to me add a new dimension to the historiography on the maritime aggression and it also highlights the little known facts on the piratical culture of the arabian sea so god willing or inshallah if it shapes up accordingly i think it will catch attention of the scholars and besides that i am hoping to write a research paper on uh, Finlay's textile and tea enterprises connecting uh, Bombay and Assam and a book uh, which the Bhartiyas want me to write on the overseas linkages. That all sounds really exciting and I will definitely be looking up for all your up- upcoming projects. So thank you so much to the both of you for joining us today and thank you listener for listening to today's episode in which we explored the transregional trade and traders situating Gujarat in the Indian Ocean from early times to 1900, co-edited by Taya Goswami and Ned Alpis, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. It is available on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Eng. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean Bowl.